Everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 193. Uh, and we, as we continue our brand new chapter, The Ring Goes South, very exciting. Tonight we will be uh, privileged to hear the highly expurgated version of the Council of Elrond. Uh, that is to say, Bilbo's, I think we'll all be able to agree, Bilbo's admirably succinct summary of the entire chapter uh, of the Council of Elrond. Uh, so, uh, so we'll see. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, Bjorning. Um, uh, we're going to go back to the Council because I was worried that we'd missed something. Exactly. So we're just going to go over it again really quickly. No, Bilbo's going to go over it uh, uh, really quickly, in fact. So we will see. But first, um, I wanted to... First... Uh, quick announcements. Um, so uh, I wanted to I, say uh, last week I was talking about uh, Mythmoot and how wonderful Mythmoot was and how great it was to see so many of you. Um, I've been, you'll remember, over the last month or so, I've been kind of resisting talking about our regional moots because uh, it, I was like thinking about Mythmoot. You know, we had to focus on that. But... Um, uh, but uh, now it's time, right? It is open season on our regional moots. I am looking forward to a full calendar of regional moots this year. Um, so here is what I want to um, uh, what I want to what I want to do. A bunch of you have expressed interest in, you know, maybe even participating in uh, the uh, the planning for some of our regional moots. Some of you have have, have spoken of an interest in, uh, you know, helping us to do a regional moot near you, or you know, maybe pitching in t uh, on the planning team uh, for a, a moot that is that you know that we already do that is near you. Um, I would love to you know, connect folks uh, with our planning teams uh, if you would be interested in doing that. Let me explain a little bit about what's involved. So our regional moots um, are very simple. We try to keep those as simple as possible. Um, and Signum takes care of most of the uh, most of the big things. Like, you know, we'll do most of the, like, major arrangements and we certainly pay for all the things and stuff. We don't leave our, uh, we don't, we don't leave our regional organizers holding the bag or anything like that. Um, but we do need boots on the ground, basically. You know, we need help finding, you know, finding a good place where we can meet, a good simple place where we can meet, usually one that we can meet at for free or for very little. Um, you know, finding some local places to eat and stuff like that. It's, uh, you know, the, 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 the things that we need from the people on the ground are relatively simple. And then there's some, you know, logistical stuff as we're getting ready for uh, people to come in and everything. We actually have our, our regional moots uh, pretty well scripted out uh, in advance. You know, we have what um, what we call our moot in the box uh, that we can kind of hand out to organizers and stuff. And a lot of our regional moots already have, you know, teams of people who have been involved in previous years. But it's, you know, often handy to have other folks who are involved. So um, I just wanted to invite anybody who is interested 
in you know uh, in in helping to make regional moots possible. Um, Get in, get, in, get in touch with us. Email us at info at signumu.org and we will connect you with our organizational team. Um, let me tell you a little bit about the moots that we are planning. I am hoping, it is my hope that we will be able to um, bring back together again uh, the round of regional moots, all of the regional moots in America that we had done before and also add a few extras. Um, so, um, First, let me just say in advance, we of course did have a couple international moots. Um, we have been doing Europe. We've done we've done Europe moot twice. Uh, we are planning to go back to the UK and do Dragon moot in Wales. Um, but uh, but I don't know uh, if we're going to be able to uh, do that or when we're going to be able to do that. Um, it's the international moots are still hard because I don't know for sure when we're going to be able to travel exactly, right? That's just, it's still unclear. So I'm kind of holding off, not, you know, I'm still holding out hope that we'll be able to do that later on, like in the spring, perhaps, but we'll see. Um, so I definitely want to do dragon moot in Wales. I definitely want to do maple moot in Canada. We were planning on a moot in Toronto, uh, in 2020 that got canceled. Um, and, uh, and we were all set to do Nippon moot in Japan before that got canceled too. Um, so I would definitely like to revisit those, um, and see if we can get those moving again, but I have less of an idea as far as those are concerned. Um, where we, uh, you know, when we can do those. But our domestic moots, uh, we are, um, uh, we're definitely um, much more confident in. Um, so our round of domestic moots included, and I'll try not to forget, to forget anybody, um, we do New England moot. Um, when, that's going to be the first one that's going to happen. That's going to be in September, uh, probably late September, maybe the first week in October. We'll announce the date soon. We're firming that up with our venue. Um, and uh, it's going to be in New Hampshire. We're going to do Middle Moot in Iowa again, uh, uh, as in Waterloo, Iowa, as we've done before, twice before. Um, and we're going to do... Um, uh, uh, and, and, and that's, those are the two most definite ones. Um, then of course we have Tex Moot, which is one of our, uh, one of our, uh, longest running moots, uh, which normally happens at the beginning of the year. We have our two California moots, Bay Moot, uh, in the San Francisco area and SoCal Moot in the LA area. Um, so we'll, we'll sort of see where those end up getting situated. Um, we have Sunshine Moot in Florida and Magnolia Moot uh, in the South. Um, we've been holding that uh, in Charlotte. Um, but I'm also interested to see, you know, a, a bunch of our moots kind of migrate around a little bit. And I, I like it when we can do that. So I don't know if maybe Magnolia Moot, maybe we can do it in Charlotte again. Maybe we do it. Uh, maybe we try moving somewhere else, um, uh, you know, Atlanta or Nashville or something like that. Again, that's going to depend on where we, you know, have enough local contacts to be able to pull it off down there. Um, uh, and same with like SoCal Moot and Bay Moot, the exact location. We had Bay Moot uh, in Oakland once. We had Bay Moot in Berkeley another time. Um, so it, they can kind of, um, you know, travel around a little bit depending uh, on where we uh, uh, on where we go. But um, 
Uh, anyway, so um, those are the those are the the, the moots that we have done in the past before, um, and uh, but we're also looking to add some. The the one I am most confident um, that uh, we are going to be able to um, add is Buckeye Moot in Ohio. Um, I've, we've met, I've talked about that. We mentioned that before. And, uh, at, at myth moot, we got like a ton of people. It uh, turns out a lot of our signum folk are from Ohio. So I think we're gonna, that one's going to be pretty easy to pull off, but still very interested to hear anybody who is, uh, uh, who is interested in, in participating in that. Um, and, um, then we also have uh, the prospect of doing one where we're, 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 I would like to get one together out in the western part uh, of the country, uh, sort of the um, the sort of center of the western part of the country. Um, and uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see um, uh, what that um, what that ends up being. It's possible that we. Um, might do a moot in Salt Lake City. Uh, we're ta- I was talking with a uh, with a volunteer about that potentially. Um, we could m- maybe we could do Denver. I'm not sure. So it's that region is hard because all of the cities are really widespread. Um, but it would be fun to try to do one in that country. Um, I would love to do um, one in the Pacific Northwest, like Seattle, would be really cool. But um, I don't. Um, I don't know exactly. I get we don't. I don't have any very clear leads there. So those. That's like my own wish list. I would love to do the to add the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I would love to add, um, uh, you know, to to figure out the Western one. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, DMA, we could we uh, 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 we could still do remote, right? Uh, uh, as uh, as my son joked, um, up in. <laughs> Alaska, <laughs> but that's uh, um, kind of a destination moot uh, for a lot of people, I think. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So we'll see. Um, we'll see exactly. But but again, I want to repeat my uh, my request. Anybody who is interested in helping to be our kind of boots on the ground and 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 get things settled, um, you know, this is not just we're not just going to be like handing you the baby here and planning this whole event. We have a lot of things worked out, uh, and there will be sort of specific tasks we'll be we'll be giving to people. Um, but you know, the more the merrier on a lot of these planning. Okay, that's not quite true. Uh, there is a limit to how many uh, organizers is uh, contributes to merriment. But um, anyway, uh, uh, it's good to have a bunch of people involved. So send an email, info at signumu.org, if you would be interested in, um, uh, you know, in being connected with our, um, with our team, uh, our, our events organizing team. And we will be in touch. Um, so anyway, that is... Um, that is the, the, the really exciting plan. And we'll see, we'll do international ones as soon as we can. Um, but, um, but we will, um, um, uh, we, we will, we will definitely see. So I'm going to be, we're, we're going to be working actively on setting our calendar basically, um, for, uh, for the, for the year, uh, pretty soon here in the next, in the next month or so, I'd like to get a, a, a basic calendar, you know, a basic sequence down, uh, to at least have, you know, the month or fortnight in which we, uh, uh, we're going to locate a moot. Um, so I, 
yeah, so again, if you would like to be involved in that, uh, jump in on that and let us know uh, sooner rather than later uh, would be would be most helpful there. Um, so the other thing I just wanted to mention is I have already received several emails from folks who have expressed interest in participating in the multimedia digital ongoing publication for posterity uh, of uh, you know the 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 ongoing permanently unfolding discussion of exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, that I was talking a little bit about last week. Um, I'm going to be setting something up for that uh, very soon. I hope this week uh, to sort of uh, create a space where we can officially uh, begin discussions on that. Um, but again, I just wanted to invite, you know, on anyone else who uh, wants to be involved there at the, at the start of that um, again, send an email to info at uh, and we will get that and include you in our list for that. So um, anyway, um, thanks. Thanks for uh, all of those who have stepped forward and contributed, uh, you know, have uh, uh, expressed their interest in contributing to that so far. And of course, I want to thank uh, Tony Mead for his initiative in starting the summaries, which are really going to serve as like, you know, the backbone of this project at the beginning. We already have all of these wonderful episode summaries that Tony's already made. Uh, you can see Tony's episode summaries uh, on our discussion forum, this whole sub forum for his summaries. Um, uh, and it's just it's it provides a really wonderful wonderful, uh, as I say, kind of, uh, you know, backbone or sort of framework on which we can hang, um, you know, lots of, you know, further discussion and developing further points and, uh, and, you know, bringing in audio and video and all kinds of things. So uh, many thanks to Tony for, uh, for his initiative and his hard work and his faithfulness and sticking with that. Um, he's, you know, still been updating them. It's, it's up to date. He has uh, 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 the, um, summaries published through last week. So, um, it's, um, it's, uh, it's really awesome stuff. So anyway, many, many thanks to, to, to Tony, uh, for that. All right. Now I wanted to, uh, touch on a question, uh, which I really liked, uh, from our, oh yes. Thank you, Doraward, for reminding me. I also wanted to show you that we do have a couple new designs in our uh, merch store, uh, which are fun. We have a new color logo for Signum um, and uh, our bibliophile uh, design and our keep calm, the eagles are coming design. Uh, so those are three designs now available uh, in our uh, uh, in our online store at Redbubble. Uh, so just go to redbubble.com slash people slash Signum store. Uh, and there we are. The link is in, uh, is in Discord there. Um, anyway, so yeah, I did want to thank you to Howard for reminding me about that. Um, okay. Um, yeah, uh, uh, the uh, Keep Calm, the Eagles Are Coming, that, that design uh, was made originally by Tom Hillman. Um, several years ago, he sent it to me. Um, and it's actually... Uh, it's actually been the um, the home screen on my phone for years. You know, I have my "Keep Calm, the Eagles Are Coming" thing. I've I've had that as my home my uh, my lock screen for for a long time. Um, so I love that design. Um, all right, so let us get into the question um, uh, from. Uh, Yes, Reader Elrond, we do have uh, we do have a sign to put on the door saying "Beware the Leopard." Yeah, absolutely. We we pretty much had to make that one um, for our own use. Um, you know, as we go through the accreditation process, it turned out to be necessary. Um, 
but anyway, yeah. So, okay. So Antistrophe uh, had this really interesting uh, sort of point in question uh, here. Um, the discussion in 191 about Sam's volunteering and Elrond's response made me think again about the Hobbit's meeting with Gildor. Gildor is afraid to tell Frodo too much and is reluctant to give any advice, apparently from fear of nudging Frodo away from the path of his destiny from playing his part in the music. But with Sam, they not only seem to give him advice, but they actually make him promise to stay with Frodo. Why are they not afraid of disrupting Sam's destiny? I see two possibilities. One, Sam's free will doesn't matter. Or, as a servant, he has already handed his free will over to Frodo. This I cannot believe and is not supported elsewhere. Two, Sam's part in the music and his total commitment to following it is so blindingly clear to them that they have no fear of nudging him away from it. Not only is it obvious that Sam's plan, at least so far as serving Frodo, is the right thing to do and part of the music, but also that Sam wants to do this. Therefore, it can only be to the good for them to confirm and reinforce this. Thus, they leave Sam with a renewed commitment and the insight that this is the right path. And I completely agree with Antistrophe's second uh, option there. I think that's exactly right. And I, I, I was really glad uh, to be reminded um, of that passage because I think the two of them, when you put them next to each other, do create a really interesting picture, don't they? Um, that is, in these two cases, we have elves, right? Like serious elves, right? High elves, right? Um, elves with some real, not only with, you know, wisdom and knowledge of what's, you know, of, of, of things, but actually with, um, uh, you know, I mean, these are, these are Noldor. They've been, they've been around the block for quite a few times by this time. Right. Um, and both of them just, they do like take Sam's cooperation absolutely, um, for granted. Right. I mean, we see that clearly with Elrond. He he. When we talked, um, as uh, Antistrophe was saying about how Elrond makes this big deal about not, you know, um, uh, you know, goes out of his way to emphasize that it's Frodo's choice and you know Frodo should be able to choose, and then just immediately, you know, uh, brings Sam in and and he, Sam doesn't have to say anything, doesn't actually, verbally volunteer. Right. But Elrond takes him for volunteering. And I definitely um, I am two thumbs up behind the blindingly clear theory of why this happens. I think that both to Elrond and to Gildor and Gildor's companions, it was completely clear what Sam's choice was to do. I think that Sam um, is not a very tough nut to crack, as they would say. Right. Um, I think that they know um, they they uh, they know exactly what he wants to do and what he means to do. Um, I, I But I do think it's a really good observation. They speak. They don't exactly like compel him to promise or something like that, but they do exactly what Elrond says, like he's not wanting to do. Right. I mean, they, they speak in the imperative voice to him. Right. You know, don't you leave him. Now, at least that's Sam's paraphrase. He, they probably didn't use exactly those words, right? Because it kind of sounds like Sam's own tone of voice, right? So I think that Sam is paraphrasing when he says that. But nevertheless, he says that they say to him, don't you leave him, right? He characterizes them at the very least of like, you know, speaking, um, um, speaking in, in the imperative, uh, uh, in the imperative mood. Sorry, did I say voice? I did say voice. 
I meant mood. Um, anyway, so I think that that's, I think that that's, it is really interesting and it is pronouncedly different to how they deal with Frodo and how they talk to Frodo. And this, again, both of those things, both Elrond's, you know, caution with Frodo and Gildor's caution with Frodo are just as parallel, just as closely parallel as their freedom with Sam, right? And, uh, uh, and, and them signing him right up, right? For all of this. Um, so anyway, I think that that's, I think that that's, to me, that does bespeak more than anything else, um, Sam's, Sam's commitment. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah, JJ, as you say, um, uh, I think the elves aren't forcing Sam to promise. They're teasing him because it's so obvious that he's going to. Uh, yes, yes. Um, uh, as Green Great Dragon says, Sam's fate chimed with his desire. Uh, yes, yes. Um, there is in Sam no real question, right? His desire is to... Uh, do that which it is clearly his fate to do, right? There's no, uh, there's no dilemma. There's no hard choice in front of him. He's already made the choice, and the choice is obviously good, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And of course, um, JJ, as you point out, they are teasing him, right? They are laughing, and now they laugh when. Uh, they laugh at him when he says specifically, if any of those black riders try to stop him, they'll have Sam Gamgee to reckon with, right? And that is pretty funny, right? I mean, especially if you know, as they do, and Sam does not, uh, what the black riders are, um, that's a pretty funny statement. Um, but, um, uh, but, but, but yeah, it, 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 that is still, despite the fact that uh, they might laugh at his, uh, his way of saying it at his, uh, at his confidence. Um, they, um, they definitely, they're definitely feeling him, right? They know exactly where he's, um, where he's wanting to go. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Druid's Fire, I completely agree, uh, that the, the, the moment when, um, you know, Jackson has Sam turn back uh, in the Return of the King film is like completely inexcusable. Completely inexcusable. It's one of the most... I I think it's the second most inexcusable moment in that entire adaptation, in my opinion. Uh, the second most. It's... Um, um, and it's only second most because it's at least defensible on dramatic grounds. Um, it's not internally nonsensical. I mean, it's desperately untrue to Sam's character, um, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, oh, no, no, sorry. The first being the Witch King breaking Gandalf's staff. That is the worst. Um, the general depiction of Faramir and Treebeard I strongly dislike. Um, but again, they kind of work internally, even though I dislike them. But uh, but yeah, the Witch King breaking Gandalf's staff doesn't even have the excuse of, you know, dramatic tension or something. It's just simply, utterly nonsensical. Of the, It is the only one 
of the scenes that was cut from the theatrical version and put back in the extended edition that I think they should have just left on the cutting room floor. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's the only scene that I think is just actually actively horrible. And again, like in conflict uh, with the text itself. Uh, Silk Westcott killing the mouth of Sauron is, is top 10 for me. Um, but it just, it does less violence to the whole thing. It's bad, but it's not quite so bad. Um, but, um, Anyway, okay. Um, uh, <laughs> you're right. Hythalos says, I get mad just thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yep, yep. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't trying to, 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 to dredge up painful memories. Um, but um, it's uh, Druid's Fire's fault, actually. Um, but, um, but yeah, Matt, I agree that the elves' laughter they might have underestimated Sam there, given what we saw from the gaffer and farmer maggot when they faced down black riders. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, Matt, I can't help but think of the, the very first draft, um, that Tolkien wrote of the cracks of doom, um, which had, okay. Second, second draft that Tolkien wrote of the cracks of doom when Sam ends up, um, standing in between, in fact, at the cracks of doom when Frodo was at the cracks of doom, a Nazgul arrives and Sam like duels him to give Frodo time. Um, uh, thus full, like the, you know, they'll have the, exactly fulfilling that line. Right. Which is really attractive uh, in a lot of ways. It also, I'm not saying I think he shouldn't have cut that, but uh, still I kind of, uh, kind of delightful it is. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So, um, I, but I, and, and I like exactly Antistrophe's concept there, um, that um, basically what they're doing is confirming and reinforcing him, you know, renewing his commitment um, and, um, and his conviction, you know, that this, is, that this is the right path. I think that's exactly the point. And I think Elrond can see it um, plain as a pike staff, absolutely, uh, just like that, mad violinist. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, I think that that's, um, uh, that's exactly what I think is going on there. I think it's a really good way to think about it. I don't think we talked about it in exactly those terms, um, you know, a couple of weeks back when we were looking at that. So I was, I, I was, I love that parallel. So thank you, Antistrophe, for, uh, pointing that out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, great, Matt. Thank you. I, I'm glad to, uh. I'm glad you reposted that. Um, Matt says, given all this, why don't the elves name Sam an elf friend? I wonder. What I wonder is, do we think he's not? I mean, at no point in the text is Sam officially decreed to be an elf friend, right? Like, we get that moment with Gildor and Frodo, right? I name you elf friend. And then we have people pointing it out, right, later on. Um, we don't ever see a moment like that with Sam. But at the same time, at the end of the day, like, by the time Sam goes back to the Shire at the end, is he not an, is he not an elf friend? I mean, isn't he? Surely he would be, right? <laughs> elf friend by, by proxy? Um... 
he's more of an elf fan. Yeah, it's true, Silk Waskett. He certainly is more of an elf fan. Um, but, um, yeah. And Mad Violinist, it's true that no one ever speaks of the light in his eyes or the ring in his voice. Um, but then again, nobody else does for Frodo besides Goldberry either. Um, I can't help but thinking about... Uh, um, yeah, exactly, Fourth Dauntless. I can't imagine thinking about Galadriel's words to to Sam in the Shire at the end, right, about the use he's made of her gift and um, and the... Uh, uh, and then, of course, his, like, the invite that he gets to Valinor, as Fourth Dauntless points out. Um, I can't imagine that, you know, the elves would not officially consider him an elf friend. Um but we don't see it happening. It is possible. Um, uh, it is possible that um, as uh, evil Dr. Cannon was suggesting there, that maybe it happened while Frodo was sleeping and Frodo didn't know. Uh, Sam might not have included it himself. Or does it happen later on? I mean, is he officially, you know, or is it part of like, does the bestowing of gifts by Galadriel trump the normal elf friendship routine? I don't really know. You know, like it's, uh, um, I don't know. Um, but it's really, see, I don't, um, I don't really, and, and part of the problem here, um, right, Admiral Malcontent says, is Gimli also an elf friend? Well, that's a really wonderful, I mean, Gimli, on the one hand, is like the elf friend among dwarves, right? I mean, his friendship with Legolas is legendary, but he doesn't get an induction ritual either, right? Um, so, you know, I don't know. Um, but um, I, 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 I mean, we know <laughs> that Gimli is an elf friend, right? Um, so, you know, I don't... Um, It's it's hard because on the one hand, I want to just kind of wave my hand and say, oh, well, you know, that whole elf friend thing, like it, it's made a big deal of in Frodo's case, because that's a really important moment in the story. Right. And it, and it um, the, the kind of blessing that is upon him is important. Right. Um, and plays an important role in the story and kind of dovetails into the sort of larger benediction that Elrond is going to pronounce upon him, we'll get there in this chapter, right? Um, so, you know, so other people are doubtless also elf friends. Um, certainly Sam, certainly Gimli. Um, you know, I think uh, Aragorn has moved a little past friendship, you know, if you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, you know, again, we'd, I'm, and maybe he had a ritual at some point earlier on. But again, I just, I don't, th I, I'm not convinced that on the one hand, as I say, I want to wave my hand and say, I think that that moment is emphasized with Frodo. I think it's sort of emphasized in a way to really, I, to really highlight it um, because it kind of points out this larger theme in the story. And, you know, the blessing of all good folk that goes with Frodo on his quest throughout the journey, this sign that other people can see that he is, you know, um, you know, on the side of the angels, right? That he is on this important quest. Um, all of these things, I think I could say, but on the other hand, right? 
um, on the other hand, I, uh, um, the, the fact that Frodo's elf friendship is perceptible to Goldberry, uh, uh, Chris, as you were first pointing out, um, and then pos- you know, to Faramir as well, potentially, um, that gets made a little bit too big of a deal of, um, to completely dismiss, I think. Um, but here's what I think. Um, I think that there are two factors involved. Okay. Here's what I would theorize. I theorize there there are two things involved here. Um, I don't know that the light in his eyes, right, um, that Goldberry can perceive, right, when she says, I see that you are an elf friend, right, the, what, what's the rest of that line? The light in your eyes and the something else tells it. Uh, Chris, you just quoted it, but it was a while upstream and I don't remember what it is. Um, but anyway, I'm losing the line in the ring in your voice. There we go. Thank you, Mad Violinist. The light in your eyes and the ring in your voice tells it, right? I don't think that that's a law or that, like, the commutative property is involved, right? She can tell that he's an elf friend because of the light in his eyes and the ring in his voice. Does that mean that all elf friends have that? No, but everybody who has that light in their eyes and ring in their voice are certainly elf friends, right? If that were true... So, so imagine, for instance, right, we have the state of being an elf friend on the one hand, right? And then imagine, this is theorizing here, let's theorize that Gildor placed this other kind of blessing, like over and above the normal elf friendship thing, right? So this is not something that all elf friends receive automatically, but Gildor perceiving that Frodo is bearing a great burden without guidance places a blessing upon Frodo. And it's that blessing that Goldberry perceives, right? She perceives this blessing that is upon Frodo. So what does she say? Oh, I see that you're an elf friend. Because obviously, elves aren't gonna, are not going to confer that blessing upon somebody who's not an elf friend, right? Um, but... Um, and because, again, we see this kind of, you know, go with the, um, you know, there are lots of people who are going to bless Frodo when they know, especially those that learn and know of his quest. Um, they are all going, he's going to be blessed by, he's blessed by Gildor. He's going to be blessed, um, he's blessed by Tom Bombadil. He's going to be blessed by Elrond. He's going to be blessed by Galadriel. He's going to be blessed by Faramir again, Right. All of these people who find out who he is and what he's doing and realize, you know, the role that he's playing for team-free peoples of Middle-earth, right, lay what blessing they have upon him, right? Um, so I don't think that we can necessarily identify the blessing that is laid upon Frodo, even by Gildor, in the moment of naming him an elf friend. Like, it happens at that moment. I think there's no question, right? Um, But I'm not sure that 
I, th- I guess the shortest way to say what I'm trying to say is I think Frodo might be a bad data point here for elf friendship, right? Because yes, he's being named an elf friend, but there's a lot more going on there, right? And this is not, I think, just part of your standard elf friend package uh, that he is that he is receiving, if you see what I mean. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, there's only a few times the phrase elf friend is used. It's mostly about Frodo. Of course, Elrond used it when he talked about the Hall of Fame, right? Hurin and Turin and, uh, you know, uh, Hador and the rest of them, um, Baron, uh, were called elf friends as well. Um, Bilbo is explicitly named elf friend in The Hobbit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and JJ, I think it's pretty clear that when Gildor does the same to Frodo, Tolkien is following in, is, it has that passage of The Hobbit in mind when Bilbo is named an elf friend. Um, yeah. So, um, but like I said, I, I, I just, I can't, no, it's not just that I can't imagine. I refuse to accept the idea. I just flat refuse to accept the idea that Sam is not an elf friend by the end. Certainly. Even now. Even now. But certainly not by the end. I can't, um, I can't, I don't accept it. Definitely not. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, but thank you for bringing up this important point, (laughs) which is tangential to this thing, which is an introduction to our actual discussion. Um, but yeah, somehow Sam being an elf friend, but not explicitly, not being explicitly called out at one seems very fitting. JJ, I agree with you. I agree with you there. Um, he doesn't, Sam doesn't need a ceremony, right? Um, but that he is a friend to elves. In a sense, of course, Sam has been an elf friend since before he the whole book started, right? Yes, he's an elf fan, but he is, um, you know, I, I can't help but think of, uh, think of that moment in Smith of Wooten Major, right? The way that both um, Alf and the Fairy Queen talk about mortals and their relationship with fairy and their belief in fairy, Right. Um, And the kind of blessing that it is for them to know about and to believe in fairy. Um, Sam is a wonderful example of a very similar kind of thing. Right. He is holding on to the belief of fairy in the midst of a shire, which is losing touch with those things as voiced uh, by Ted Sandyman. Right. And I think that he um, he clearly has uh, he he sort of wins the popularity contest. Ted Sandyman does, right? More people side with him than with Sam uh, in Sam's debate. Um, so Sam is a minority voice there at the Green Dragon. But um, but again, he, he, is, um, he is a friend of fairy, a friend of elves, um, before he ever meets one, right? Um, and, and I wonder if there's a sense almost like what Antistrophe suggests here. Um, they don't need to name him an elf friend because it's obvious that he already is, right? Um, it would be like what they're doing here with his con- his determination to follow Frodo. They don't need to tell him to do it. There's no question 
of you know his free because his free will is engaged and his his path is laid already right um he's already chosen it and um i think he's already he's already an elf friend too without being without being named to um okay all right let's go back to the text so gandalf has just said that nothing was decided yet um and pippin exclaims nothing decided cried pippin then what were you all doing? You were shut up for hours. Talking, said Bilbo. There's a summary. Bilbo's one-word summary of the Council of Elrond. Talking, right? Talking, said Bilbo. There was a deal of talk, and everyone had an eye-opener. Even old Gandalf. I think Legolas's bit of news about Gollum caught even him on the hop, though he passed it off. You were wrong, said Gandalf. You were inattentive. I had already heard of it from Gwaihir. If you want to know, the only real eye-openers, as you put it, were you and Frodo, and I was the only one that was not surprised. Okay. Um, so, yes, the Council of Elrond equals talking. Right? Um, now, what do we think is behind Bill... This is a really... So Pippin's exclamation is very understandable, right? You were shut up for hours. Like, how is it that nothing was decided? Surely you did something in that council, right? And this opens up a really interesting question, especially in light of Boromir's poem, right? Um, there shall be councils taken stronger than Morgul's spells. Did that happen, Right? Were there councils taken stronger than the sorceress spells of darkness? Um, did a a great magic like that happen? Um, um, yeah. Yes, it did. Right? That moment... That moment at the end, Frodo, that the halfling did in fact stand forth, which I think is a, a big part of it, right? Um, the councils, the decision to send the ring to the fire uh, and then to appoint Frodo as the bearer, that's clearly it, right? Um, that's clearly the, the council that shall be stronger than Morgul spells. And I know that the councils themselves need not be magic, but I think there is a, a clear parallel there. Right. Um, as after all, a spell that is it does mean words. Right. It does mean something spoken. Um, so you have the talk up in Imladris. Right. Is going to be even stronger than the talk down in Mordor. Right. And actually, those two things are really fun when you put them against each other in that way. Right. The Morgul talk is um, it's very unidirectional. Right? Um, the Dark Lord talks and others obey, right? That's how the dominion of the Dark Lord works. That's, that's how Morgul spells function. We saw that in the Morgul Blade, right? Uh, how did that Morgul spell work? Putting Frodo under their dominion, right? It's about subjugating the wills of others. Um, whereas the Council, there's lots of talk, right? Um, uh, lots of talk, a deal of talk, and everyone had an eye opener, right? That's how. The other side works, right? That's how these uh, these councils uh, that are stronger than those Morgul spells work, um, uh, and they um, 
the one designed to crush and eliminate the freedom of the will, and the other, which in the end was primarily about protecting Frodo's freedom of will and Frodo's volunteering um, uh, to that. Um, but yeah, Matt, I agree. It was a pretty typical important meeting. There's a briefing, much debate over the briefing, some talk of the motion that needs to be decided, followed by tabling the motion until the next meeting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much that's pretty much how it went. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, Bjorning uh, was saying that um, uh, is talking. Um, you know, the, the council stronger than Morgul spells is talking, is talking, saying that conversation, dialogue, communication is essential in some way. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I do think so. I mean, we know the Morgul spells, again, the talking is, is important, right, in the Morgul spells themselves. Um, and the talking was clearly important. I can remember, I don't think it, the Council of Elrond was not necessary. I don't think it was necessary. I don't think it accomplished much in the sense in which one might think, right? Um, I, Gandalf's summary, nothing is decided yet, was um, is a little bit startling. One can forgive Pippin being startled about it. Um, but again, it's um, it didn't have to happen, right? I, Gandalf and Elrond could have made an executive choice there, right? I mean, after all, it boiled down to Elrond saying we must send the ring to the fire, right? And then Frodo volunteering. Um, Elrond saw clear, Elrond knew they had to set the send the ring to the fire. Um, Gandalf already was pretty sure that Frodo was the one who should take the ring to the fire. He already had his candidate, right? His nominee in place uh, for who should be the ring bearer. Um, so they didn't have to talk it over, right? I mean, who would have challenged him? Anyone from that room? You know, Boromir maybe, right? But again, like, they could have given him a briefing, <laughs> a private briefing, right? You know, Elrond could have, you know, uh, and in fact, I'm not even sure that that isn't what Boromir kind of expected, right? When he was there to consult Elrond, greatest of lore masters, right? So if when Boromir arrived, Elrond had taken him into a back room and been like, okay, Boromir, tell me your story. That sounds great. I think I can interpret that for you because I bet he could have, right? Especially if he brought Gandalf in. Um, he could have interpreted it for him, said, okay, here's the meaning of your hard words, um, and, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know what we're going to do, right? And then he comes to him later and is like, okay, um, ring of power, it's going to Mordor, is what's happening, right? Now, like, would Boromir have been okay with that? No, but he's not okay with it now, so uh, there we are. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, my point is, of course, I'm not actually criticizing Elrond for holding the council. I'm just saying, in answer to the question, do I think talk was necessary? Apparently Elrond did, and Gandalf. 
remember, and we saw this at many points through the council, they go out of their way. We, we just recently talked about Elrond kind of fairly dramatically going out of his way to emphasize that he's not dragooning Frodo into doing this, right? That he, you know, he does not lay this on him and all that kind of thing, right? Um, but he, um, uh, we saw earlier points, right? Well, I remember Gandalf, like, you know, here we are and here is the ring. What shall we do with it? Right. The, you know, I'm not, instead of saying like, okay, we have some ideas. We, we know Gandalf has, we know Gandalf knows just what to do. Gandalf told, like, gave spoilers back at Bag End, right? Um, he told Frodo then that the ring has to be carried to Mordor and cast into the cracks of doom in order to destroy it. Like, that was known. Gandalf knew that, right? Elrond knew that. Um, but they managed the entire meeting, right? They managed the entire council in order to talk this all out together, right? So it's... Do I think that that's important? Absolutely. Um, so I think talking is a really good synopsis. Now, it sounds a little slighting when... Um, Bilbo says it that way, right? Um, but um, uh, but I do think that um, uh, I do think that it does seem to have been important, uh, and it's not hard to see why, right? It's not hard to see why everybody needed to be brought. It's a we talked about, and this is obviously most important with Frodo, right? Frodo's own freedom of will, um, him coming to this conclusion on his own and volunteering. The others needed to be brought into that as well, brought through that process as well. Um, everybody, you know, representatives of all the free people who were there, who were called there, though not by Elrond, um, they, uh, Elrond and Gandalf, clearly felt that it was important that everybody should be brought into that discussion, that everybody should be part of those councils, that perhaps those councils would only be stronger than Morgul spells if they were done in that way, right? If everybody was um, was a part of it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Lupilia, I do agree, even for Frodo's sake, I think that it's important, right? Um, that uh, we can see what Frodo learns in the entire context and frame that his entire quest is given at the council um, is going to be important. We, we will see it, I agree with you, when he's talking with Faramir. There will be other points at which both he and Sam um, will benefit from having had that framework, right? The framework of the entire council. And it's clear that there will be others, um, there will be others as well, right? Um, who will benefit and have benefited uh, from that entire thing. Um, do I think they would take Elrond on faith if he told them, if he just briefed them all privately, right? Uh, FYI, this is what happened and, and this is what we're going to do about it. I think they'd have taken it from Elrond, um, but that's clearly not how they operate. Again, I think the contrast between how the Free Peoples go about this and how Sauron 
wants to go about this is very important, right? So I think there's a, a good reason that talk uh, is at the center of it and is therefore definitely a part of the a part of the power. Um, yes. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I want to talk about everybody having an eye opener. Um, but I don't yet want to talk about Gandalf. You could say Bilbo summarizes twice, right? First, he gives his one-word summary of what they were doing, talking, right? Then he expands on that in, the, in his next sentence. There was a deal of talk, which is just to say the same thing in slightly more words, and everyone had an eye-opener. Why do you think he emphasizes that? Why does he emphasize eye-openers? It's not an inescapable way to summarize the council, right? He could just as well, perhaps even more fitly, have said something like, there was a deal of talk uh, and, you know, like a great decision was made or there was a deal of talk and you know, the nature of the ring was much discussed. Uh, um, why does he emphasize eye-openers, surprises, realizations, revelations? Um, do you see what I mean? I mean, those things happened. There were a number of eye-openers at that council, right? Um, and that's a really um, hobbitly understated way of describing this, right? Um, you know, it was revealed, it was proven that, you know, this ring that's been in our family for decades now uh, is in fact, you know, the, like, evil one ring of power of Sauron. Yeah, that was kind of proven at the council as a bit of an eye-opener. The fall of Saruman and his betrayal, that was a bit of an eye-opener, too. Um, the revel... Oh, yeah, P.S. Aragorn is like the lost heir of Westerness. Yeah, that was uh, that was revealed also. I mean, there's a lot of things like that that happen, no question, right? Um, uh so I'm not saying that he's wrong to say that everyone had an eye-opener. Um, I just think that it's interesting that that's what he emphasizes, if you see what I mean. Um, there are lots of other ways that he could have characterized in one sentence, right? There was a deal of talk and what, right? You know, there was a deal of talk... And what he emphasizes is that everybody learned something new that was pretty surprising, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, hey, uh, hang on. There's like a big old side conversation happening about 
Gandalf here, and it would be much easier for me to follow this if that were not happening right now. Uh, that would be good. Um, yeah, Fourth Dauntless says, like, right, NPS Frodo is going to Mordor, right? I mean, yeah, that... Now, on the one hand, you could say he doesn't have to say that because that's already been established, right? The Hobbits have already been talking about the fact that Frodo is going to Mordor, so he doesn't have to... He doesn't have to do that. I uh, doesn't have to, you know, to emphasize that. Um, but, um, yeah. <laughs> C. Schwab says perhaps he's just looking for a route uh, to tease Gandalf. It is possible. It is possible. Gilgonthier wants to know if maybe he's teasing Frodo. Um, Frodo is part of the eye-opener that he volunteered on the most important quest of the age. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, Admiral Malcontent says Bilbo's basically saying the entire situation was put in context and that the broader context is pretty shocking and way more serious than most of them thought. Um, yes. Um, yeah. Uh, now that's interesting, Matt. Um, Matt says everyone who told a story got it put into a context that made their story more important and part of a bigger whole. Um, yeah, Matt, one, you know, th- to come back to what Bilbo is about to talk about. Um, Legolas's bit of news. I mean, if you'd lined everybody up, right, and said, like, what are you bringing to this council, <laughs> right? Um, what eye-openers do you have in store, right? Like, what what, what news or, th- or, or whatever, you know, that... Um, Legolas would have been near the bottom of the list as far as like, it's like, I just, I'm here to say that there was this like weird little prisoner we were keeping and he escaped. It doesn't seem like a big deal, right? Um, seems like actually kind of a, kind of a small deal, right? But of course, in context, Matt, as you're pointing out, suddenly, um, you know, as Legolas himself says, only here do I see how evil it may seem, you know, uh, uh, to this company. Um, uh, yeah, Captain Mo. Exactly. I was going to point that out. Um, Legos isn't quite the bottom of the list. Galdor is almost certainly at the very bottom of the list. Uh, but um, uh, but yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. And Admiral Malcontent, I agree. Legos also probably thought he was having he'd be having a one-on-one meeting to admit their mistake, not outing his people's failure to an audience. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, but anyway, I like this, I like this idea. If we, if we, if we see Bilbo's emphasis on everybody having an eye opener, um, being his way of pointing to this sense that everybody walked away from the council with of the sort of actions of providence in all of the things, right? Everybody comes with a story, um, you know, a report, um, a request, you know, prophetic dream, whatever. And it turns out that all of these things are connected. They are part of this one big story that, and, and they all realize, okay, this actually is potentially the turning point of the history of middle earth right now. Right. Um, the future of middle earth from now on potentially being decided right now in these councils that are being taken at this very moment. None of them, as you guys are pointing out, we're even expecting to have a um, council at all, right? Much less 
were they all seeing what the individual things that they brought. Uh, Green Great Dragon, yeah, that is very well said. This was indeed where many paths and errands meet. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's... Um, I think it's interesting that that's the thing that Bilbo emphasizes. Um, everybody had an eye-opener. Yeah, yeah. Um, we all saw the big picture. He himself had some eye-openers there. And I don't think that that only means... I, I, that's I, one of the things that I think is really sort of interesting here, right? That what does it mean to have an eye-opener? It doesn't just mean to learn something you didn't know, right? Or to be surprised by, you know, information that you didn't have. I think it also can mean... Like, I think Legolas had an eye-opener about his own news, right? Um, you know, he, as again, as his own words suggest during the um, uh, during the council, right? Only now do I, uh, you know, do I see how evil it may seem. Um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Ashnask, exactly. Legolas was the one who was surprised at the time when he broke the news. Absolutely, absolutely. His own news was an eye opener. I mean, it was obviously an eye opener in sense one, right? Being like a surprise uh, thing that I didn't know. It was clearly an eye-opener in that sense to Aragorn, right? But it was also an eye-opener to Legolas himself, right? Because he did not understand it. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting way to see Bilbo thinking about that. Because, of course, Bilbo had those two. I think that Bilbo came away with a better understanding of the ring, the significance of his relationship with the ring, of his giving up the ring. Um, I, I think that he had some eye-openers there, too. Um, not just in the sense that he learned new information. Um, but then he turns and says, even old Gandalf. I think Legolas's bit of news about Gollum caught even him on the hop, though he passed it off. Um... He turns to tease Gandalf here, right? Because, of course, Gandalf is always in the know. Um, and so he tries to throw that up at Gandalf. I think Legolas's bit of news caught even him on the hop. And then Gandalf immediately contradicts him. You were wrong. You were inattentive, teasing him back, right? You must have been nodding off at that point, Bilbo. Um, I had already heard it from Gwai here, and he does uh, mention it when he's telling that story, um, that he heard of the escape of Gollum. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, if we think about eye-openers in that broader sense that we were describing, um, Gandalf insists that he is, um, was the only one, you know, that he didn't have his eyes opened, right? His eyes were already opened uh, to all of these things. Um, 
Now, that's interesting. Uh, Thalama uh, on the Twitch chat uh, was saying, and a couple people in Discord were saying a similar kind of thing, um, uh, that um, the phrase eye-opening um, sounds like, an uh, eye-opener sounds uh, like rousing people to action. Um uh, and that, like, sort of becoming fully awake to the idea uh, that you know something has to be done, and now to the to the to the realities of their situation, to the significance of their situation. And I agree with that in the sense of its being um, a uh, um, call to action. Um, JJ, so Flamifer and JJ were both suggesting that. Um, there are two other things which almost certainly would have been eye-openers in the sense of surprise. Flamifer was arguing that um, Gandalf probably would not have heard Boromir's poem, right? If he arrived only just before the council. Um, so it's likely that he's not heard the uh, the 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 poem from Minas Tirith, right? The prophetic dream from Boromir. Um, so that might have been an eye opener to him. Um, JJ was just pointing out that um, there is clearly a moment when Gandalf is surprised in the council, um, and that's when Frodo interrupts Gandalf to tell his dream. When when um, Gandalf talks about being imprisoned on Orthanc and Frodo says, I saw you. Right? It was only, you know, the moon was in your hair. Um, as JJ quoted, Gandalf paused astonished and looked at him. It was only a dream, said Frodo. Right? Gandalf is astonished. If astonishment does not count as an eye-opener, what does? Right? He clearly is surprised by that. Um... Uh, yeah, so, so here's the deal. I don't think, so, all right, let's look at Gandalf's sort of smug was a word someone was using to describe this, and it kind of sounds that way. You were inattentive. I had already heard it from Gwaihir. If you want to know, the only real eye-openers, as you put it, were you and Frodo, and I was the only one that was not surprised, right? does sound a little smug, doesn't it? Um, why does Gandalf insist on this? On the one hand, again, it's like banter back and forth with, uh, uh, with Bilbo. He's sort of, you know, parrying Bilbo's uh, uh, teasing of him, right? But... The only real eye-openers, as you put it, were you and Frodo. Um, I think here, Gandalf is not just saying nothing surprised me. Our, I already knew everything in advance. Um, I think that what he's saying, he's putting things into context. The only real eye-openers were you and Frodo. That was the main thing. That was, if, if there was a, a, a really important revelation, 
the most important revelation, the only real eye-opener, was Bilbo and Frodo. That was the crucial thing. As affirmed by Boromir's poem, right? The halfling needed to step forth. So when the halflings, both of them, stepped forth and told their stories, right? Um, that was the, that was to, uh, to, to Gandalf, this was the most important thing, the most important eye-openers. And eye-openers, I think, in multiple senses, right? Not just surprises, though again, he comes back, I was the only one that was not surprised, right? But again, I think it's more than just, I am surprised by that piece of information I did not know, right? Because clearly there were several people in the room who were not surprised by the stories that Bilbo and Frodo heard. Aragorn, for instance, will certainly have heard Bilbo's story before. Um, and he knew Frodo's story, too, because he was in a whole bunch of it. Um, so, I, I don't think when Gandalf says, you two were the only real eye-openers and I was the only one that was not surprised. I don't think that that's what he means. He does not simply mean... Yours was the only information conveyed that truly was unexpected to lots of people, and I'm the only one who had the spoilers, right? Because I think that's not true. I think Elrond knows them, knows all about that. I think that Aragorn knows all about that. But I think that the one thing that um, the council as a whole, and quite possibly Elrond and Aragorn themselves, did, didn't know that Gandalf already did through his long association with hobbits was the role that the halflings were to play. And in a sense, you could say, Flamifer, that this is why Gandalf does not consider Boromir's poem an eye-opener, right? Because um, Aragorn, uh, sorry, Boromir's poem does nothing other than confirm what Gandalf already came in knowing, which is... Frodo's the one. This is clearly what is meant to happen. Um, does his saying, I was the only one that was not surprised, in other words, implying that Elrond also was surprised, does that suggest that Elrond still needed some convincing? That he was not sure that it was the right thing to do? I'm, I don't doubt that they would have talked it, uh, talked about it in advance. Um, did Elrond need some convincing? That appointing Frodo ring-bearer? Or enabling Frodo to volunteer to be ring-bearer um, was, uh, uh, was the way to go. Did he need convincing of that? I don't know. Maybe some, right? So I think that that's the sense in which he's saying, I wasn't surprised. I knew You guys were the real eye-openers. If we all learned something, if people had their eyes opened to something in the council today, it was the whole halfling thing, right? It was what Elrond was expressing in his, you know, small hands do them because they must speech, right? And remember, it was in that context that Elrond talked, made his statement where he said, if I understand to write all that I have heard, right? Um, uh, he is, he does say several on, I think, at least two occasions that he has learned things which lead him to believe that this is the way to go. Both the first, the sending of the ring to the fire, and secondly, that Frodo should be the one to do it. 
Gandalf already knew both. Um, so, um, yes, and Silk Westcott, you're right. Elrond suffers from not having a valid sample size to determine Hobbit potential. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Chris says that tracks with Elrond's reluctance to countenance Merry and Pippin joining the Fellowship. Right, yeah. Uh, skipping ahead a bit, but absolutely, yes, yes. Um, and I agree, Kurtzimus, if Frodo was an eye-opener, then Sam had to be as well. I agree. All three of them are eye-openers, though Sam gets left off uh, Gandalf's catalog here, as Sam often gets left off. Which, in Sam's defense, is exactly how he would want it. Um yeah, yeah. And Zephan, I absolutely agree with you that even Elrond and Aragorn may have had eye-openers regarding the hobbits. They know hobbits or know them through Gandalf, but they've never seen them on this stage. Gandalf didn't even need to see them on this stage to know what the outcome would be. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Matt, I, or, yes, Bjorning, I'm also wondering if Sam leaves himself off. With, wait, knowing the fact that Sam is the final editor of all of the primary texts, likely including the Silmarillion, um, because the translations from the Elvish by BB were put into his hands, um, makes it make much more sense that Sam will get left off a bunch of lists, lists right? I mean, I still would claim that it is perfectly obvious that that sentence in Of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, right, alone with his servant, totally written by Sam, right, clearly. Um, but anyway, um, so, to me, Gandalf's response does point to the fact, I mean, again, he's still, on one level, he and Bilbo are still bantering here. Right. And it's still it, this is being done in the context of banter. And the banter is about, you know, getting, you know, there being surprise reveals and uh, and even Gandalf being caught on the hop um, and Gandalf teasing Bilbo for, you know, like essentially falling asleep right in the meeting. You were inattentive. Um, uh, you know, I'd already heard it from Gwai here. Um, you know, you're wrong and I can prove it right by a, a, a closer memory to what was said in the uh, in, in the council than you. Um, but um, but I think it's pretty clear that the eye openers are bigger. So what when Gandalf boils it down, when he says the only real eye openers are you and Frodo, um, I think that what he is doing here is pointing to the really important thing, like the most important thing at the council. Um, which means, by the way, he is contributing to Bilbo's summary, right? Answering Pippin's question. What were you all doing? Talking. Everyone had an eye opener. The only real eye openers were you and Frodo. Um, but Gandalf already knew that that was coming. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, 
yes, I do believe that part of Bilbo's eye opener is the fact that he ultimately overcomes the temptation of the ring. Yes, yes, I do think that. Um, well, I'd say two things, Admiral Malcontent. First, the first eye opener about Bilbo is that the sort of manifestly providential nature of his finding of the ring, right? Um, that's an eye-opener by itself, right? Um, there are plenty of people in the room who can do the same math that Gandalf did out loud, right? Gandalf showed his work back in Bag End, right? Um, when he showed that Bilbo putting his hand on it blindly in the dark shows that like, that kind of thing does not just happen, right? Bilbo was meant to find the ring. Um, they're all doing that math in their head when they're hearing Bilbo's story about how he found the ring. And that's an eye-opener. Whoa! Okay. So, this funny little hobbit guy was chosen, was meant to have the ring. That's an eye-opener. That's an eye And very suggestive, right? Um, there can be no better argument for, there can be no better argument for, like, in support of why you should send that, make a halfling the ring bearer, right? Well, why you should agree to a halfling being the ring bearer than he was meant by providence to find and keep the ring. Secondly, he had it for how long? And it didn't destroy him, right? He, he endured it for 70 years. It affected him. Right. But he, he held it for 70 years without going all Dark Lord and then gave it up at the end. That's an eye opener. No mistake. Right. And then Frodo tells his story of what he went through and how he escaped and everything. And and yeah, OK, um, you get to. Elrond, I think, is speaking for many at the end when he says, if I understand or write all that I have heard, I think that this task was meant for you, Frodo. Right? Um, that's, yes, uh-huh. That's the eye-opener, right? And truly, that is, um, uh, right, sorry, 60, you're right. I was adding the 77 total since then, but 60, yeah, exactly, sorry. Um, uh, anyway, so, um, that's, uh, this Gandalf holds to be the central eye-opener and, and thus therefore undermines the last thing he said on the previous slide, right? Nothing was decided. So first he said, nothing is decided yet. And then he basically says the most essential thing has already happened. Right here, let me highlight for you, Pippin, what was most important. And what was most important was that everybody saw that Frodo should be the ring bearer. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Matt, I agree. There are a bunch of individual things. I think we could go through Frodo's story and highlight a number of places that would serve as eye openers, right? I agree. Your example of um, uh, 
standing up to the witch king and telling to go telling him to go back where he came from, right? When he's there with all of the nine with him, right? That's a big deal, right? And Frodo stands in front of them all and defies them. It's a big deal. His resistance of the Barrow White and defiance of the Barrow White, despite the fact that he had the Ring of Power both times, had the Ring of Power. He had the Ring of Power and was half under the power of the Morgul Wound when he defied the Witch King. I mean, talk about, like, operating under a handicap, right? I mean, you know, talk about, like, running with lead weights on, right? I mean, good grief. If he, in that state, right, while holding the Ring of Power, while already, um, you know, practically wraithified, right, most of the way towards wraithification, could still defy the Witch King with all of the rest of the nine behind him, it's a big deal. That's a really big deal. And I agree, the efficacy of the E-bomb at Weathertop, right? The fact that he calls out to Elbereth and she answers, that's a big deal, right? That doesn't happen every day. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yes, there are lots of things I think we could go through, even like Tom Bombadil and Tom's reactions to Frodo and, and, and Tom, you know, Bilbo's getting connected with Tom Bombadil. Even Tom Bombadil saying that, you know, his meeting with Frodo was only chance, if chance you call it, right? Tom Bombadil himself was pointing to the actions of Providence involved in uh, uh, his meeting with Frodo and, and therefore in Frodo's mission as a whole, right? So, so yeah, definitely. Both of them are eye-openers. And more importantly, eye-openers directly relevant to, like, their stories, their two stories, Bilbo's stories and Fro story and Frodo's story, they didn't realize that what was happening was that they were presenting, like, the halfling resume for, you know, ring-bearerhood, right? Ring-bearership. Anyway, um, that's, that's essentially, I think, what they were doing. And I think that, again, that's what Elrond is kind of affirming there at the end. Um, yeah. Um, good. Admiral Malcontent says that Frodo's resistance of the Witch King puts his eventual thought that he isn't powerful enough yet to dominate the Witch King into a different and less ridiculous context. Yes, Admiral Malcontent, um, I agree. I agree. Uh, it's a question I'm looking forward to discussing. We'll get there. Um, what happens when Frodo claims the ring in the Cracks of Doom? Um, I think that's an interesting question. But um, uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, around 2046 or so. Um, okay. Good. Well, I'm going to stop there because it's field trip time. Uh, good slide. Good slide tonight. Um, uh, we're going to be building up towards... There's another poem coming soon. It's a short one. But there's another poem, poem coming soon. Maybe we'll get to it next week. We'll see. Um, but um, anyway, uh, thanks everybody 
for joining me tonight. Um, we're going to go back to our field trip here. Um, but uh, thanks, everybody, who participated in our text discussion. And feel free to join us for our field trip where we, we will be uh, going about Lindelby and trying oh, to figure going. out. Yeah. Very excited about uh, getting the lay of the land there. Now that the big reveal happened that I didn't know was going to happen. So let's see. Did we... Yeah. Okay, good. I, we did get to uh, Milestone Lindelby itself, so. Cool. Could I just say one thing, though? Yes. Talking. Talk Talking. 67 yeah. bloody episodes, and we get talking. Talking. That's it. That's talking. all we needed, really. Yeah, that's the synopsis. Uh-huh. Uh Yes, I know. I have, I, a, I have a Bjorning like rage at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey, good. Look, it's daytime. Oh, wonderful. I get to look around oh. while it's still day. It's afternoon, though, so I should hurry up. Mm. It's going to get dark here. Maybe we'll get a lovely sunset here in Lindelby, but with all the mist, we probably won't see that much. It will um, be dark soon. I love the buntings. Yes, I wonder what kind of party they're having. Yeah. Um, also, it's a house. Look at this house. I mean, we've got some proper holes that look like hobbit holes in the ground. Um, uh, yeah. But this is a legitimate house. It's got the turf roof like the others, so it kind of, mm -hmm. kind of looks like a hole in the ground, though it doesn't have fully round doors. It has arched doors, but that's not the same thing. So if you have your cat, make sure it's switched off. Yeah, I, I, I'm not even going to summon my cat. Okay, good. Yes. Pity the, the chickens of Lindelby are, are safe this week, yes. Um, yeah. So that's the, it's, it's an interesting architectural feature. Now, we have these granaries, but we, we see these in the Shire, and these have the fully round doors, mm -hmm. right? Although the materials are different. Materials are different than we see in the Shire. Um, we have this building with stone here. And the and, uh, stone construction looks very similar. Not identical but similar to the stone construction we've been seeing in the older Aotheod epoch, right, of this mm -hmm. whole area. It's interesting they sort of took a half-timber approach on this. Yeah. Um, now, I agree with JJ, this is a... This is in all likelihood, a barn, not a house. It does have a, you know, a lovely little planter out front, but you might put mm -hmm. a little lovely little planter out in front of your barn. This hey, what's like this a machine? Civic building, actually. This looks like something like where the, the mayor or the community center would be. What is this machine? I'm trying to figure out if it's more complex than a, a water wheel or a hand loom. Oh, let me see. It looks vaguely like uh, one of those machines for making a souvenir penny, but I don't think that's what it is. Uh, yeah. Some kind of wheel. It looks like a spinning wheel, but I don't see. I don't it's not got a foot pedal. Yeah, it's not got a spindle yeah. or a foot pedal. It's got a hand crank. Could it be. Um, 
could still be wool related though. Could yeah, it be uh what's that thing, the wheel that's that like that you use to um Centrifuge. Yeah, except for wool. Um Oh shoot, I just learned about this a couple weeks yeah, ago. Spinner. I just learned this word. Spinning um, no, 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 not a spinning wheel. A spinning wheel is totally different. Spinning wheel is when you spin the wheel into thread. The thing I'm thinking of is the, the round framework that goes around in circle that helps you to take a skein of wool and roll it into a ball. Oh, it's called... yeah, those things that turn it into a cake, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. It's called I don't a... know what they're called. I have seen them. Uh, darn it, I've forgotten the word. I can't think what this turning handle does. Um, me neither. A Obviously swift. That's here. it, Curious Jean. Thank you. A swift. A that's just swift. what I was saying. That's it. A swift. Learned something today. That's cool. That is precisely it. It is called a swift. I knew what that because my wife and I saw a swift in a museum, and I didn't know what it was, so I had to Google it and look it up. And oh. I, I found Intriguing. YouTube explanations. A swift. That is absolutely it. Um... But it's, I, don't, I don't think it is that. Okay, so we've got this hand crank, which turns what, the presumably the, the wheel. And the wheel has this rope around it. That wheel, does the whole business go around? Or does the okay. wheel go around inside? Are the, Those three points aren't stationary, are they? Like those three little round blocks? Uh, I don't know. It looks yes, like it they are. Around. They're driven into the posts. Yes. Huh. So if we assume, let's assume that wheel is round, right? Maybe yes. it's octagonal for, you pixel know, purposes. pixel yeah. <laughs> purposes. Exactly. Um, but So let's imagine that we're round and that we're going around inside those three things. And there's a rope around the posts that, uh-huh. why would that be? What would you be doing there? Mm. Maybe it's just for like turning fibers into roving or something? I have no idea what that thing could be. I mean, be. I haven't seen any sheep, for one thing. I don't think it's food-related. Um, Not like a thresher or something? No. We'd need more thingies. Yeah, we'd need more things and bigger things. I think we're only seeing part of a machine. Maybe, I mean, maybe, it maybe it needs an the attachment. Right into the wall. Yeah, maybe it needs an attachment. It does maybe. look like the hand crank certainly does look like um, a well crank. I agree. It certainly looks like that sort of crank. But of course, we it's should, very, yeah. very far away we, we from. We should the, look for a well and see if they have the same mechanism. If we can find one. Could it be? I don't know. Would it be like a portable? Would you bring it to the well and use it to crank the? the bucket down so like you like it's not permanently attached to the well it's not know. bad idea you could have a portable well crank that you could bring to all the wells in town or it's being repaired maybe i don't know and it'll go back when it's finished how puzzling emily does well, point we'll out that there's a well nearby that has no mechanism oh yeah let's where's that let's take a look see if we can figure this out Okay, I don't see them well. 
Oh, there it is. Oops. Up there? Okay. It's up the hill there. These are bit, beehives over here, right? Is yeah, those are yeah, beehives yeah, yeah, yeah. there. Okay, all right, yeah. so here's the well. There's a bucket, but no way to... And that's a deep well. So yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So my theory is it's under repair. Right. Or it's meant to... If there's other wells that are similarly no, unmechanized, then, right, you, you can't... Are you trying to throw yourself in and uh, and then you'll be no further nuisance? Uh, well, I'll be well-traveled. Yeah, still, that's still... I have to say, of everything in Lotro, that is the most disappointing... Of, like, it's the only thing that really disappoints me. Like, the one thing that, like... I found it by accident. I did. I was trying to yeah. jump over that well. I did not no, intend no. to fall in. I was the, a total shock to me. What 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 disappoints me is the lost opportunity, right? Gandalf's actual words are throw yourself in next time and then you'll be no further nuisance. Like ah, that you don't ah. get the title no further, no further nuisance news. when you throw yeah. yourself into the well. Like that was just it was right there and they missed the opportunity. Like yeah. I find that horribly disappointing. That's true, but I like the I like the hobbitry in the title. It sounds like something. Pippin yeah, might have said I mean, it's like a fun little pun and everything, but oh man, like yeah, and but the fact it's in Moria, I got, I got gotcha. you. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, no further nuisance. I mean, that's the very well that Gandalf made that remark about. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be why they the exact phrase. I'll see. I don't know. I mean, I guess in an in an excess of caution, but um, come on. They quote the text more than three words at a time before. They can't quote old passages. But um, they wouldn't even have to do the whole sentence to uh, to be able to make that happen. But anyway, okay. Yes. So what else can we learn? So, observa- so we're looking at big uh, picture observations about this particular hobbit settlement here. Um, and the first is their use of stone. Um, and see, now we have what is clearly a non-barn, which is also a low building, a built imitation mm-hmm. of a smile, or at least maybe this is actually an extension of one, actually. It seems to go on into the hill, perhaps. So maybe yeah. this is an addition, right? But uh, mm-hmm. but their stone architecture here um, is in the stone chimneys, right? This seems different. And as I say, seems to be connected or at least associated with the stone architecture of the area that we see. But there are obviously lots of similarities. The round doors. um, The the, uh, the sloped roofs. Yeah, the sloped roofs. um, uh, Obviously the dwelling in holes. Um, What other... Similarities or differences. Using this architectural style. Mm -hmm. Like how how many centuries did this go unchanged? Well, given the location of these hobbits, geographically Mm -hmm. speaking, I mean, they have Mm -hmm. to be connected with Gollum's people, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's quite okay. Well, relatively nearby, right? So here we are up in the mountains to the. I'm looking at the map now. The mountains to the south of Gundabad and. Um, and Gollum was down here at the Gladden Fields. Um, so if we assume, which maybe we can't assume, that the Gladden Fields hobbits, of which um, Gollum was one, um, oh, who do we think came first? Hmm, hmm, that's a really interesting question. 
I'm trying to remember everything that I can remember about, um, uh, about, um, the, you know, the old Hobbit ruins, you know, the settlement that we found, you know, Gollum's old, old house there. Mm-hmm. Um, and which that was one, a cave, mostly. well, it was a cave. Yeah, it was, it was a hole in the ground, but it was really a hole, a hole in the cliff, right? It was really, yeah. it was really, it looked like Hobbit architecture inside and had a round door. Um, but it was not, this is much more fully developed, right? I mean, yes. although there are definite differences with the stonework, especially, you got to think that almost any Hobbit, um, you know, from Hobbiton would feel at home here, right? This is a very Hobbity town. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, Hobbit. Huh? Go up the pass right where I am. There's a hobbit there. I can see him on your screen. Wait, where? By the door. Oh, right here? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Look, there is one. Oh, my goodness. Ah. That's a rightly bony thing he looks. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so... Tartan in his kilt. Yeah, he's wearing a kilt. And a tartan. Yeah, you're right. Oh my Valaric goodness. Tuka. Huh? Valaric Tuka. Tuka. Okay. Uh, but there's a so shared route there. I think so. That seems pretty clear. Um, and Valaric. Valaric. That sounds kind of gothic, doesn't it? it like does. the Aotheon? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's up there with like Mariadoc and stuff. Yeah, yeah, which we can see those kinds of roots there too. Um, but yeah, yeah Valoric, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As Stunned Duck says, it's uh, Alaric, which is an actual Gothic name, but with a V, right? Um, I dig it. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, yeah, so he's got this leather kilt. Which looks like it would increase his armor class, frankly. I mean, that's a pretty serious thing. It's got it's pine cones and and leaves. Pine cones. It looks like pine cones and oak leaves. Yeah, yes, because it's got the acorns there, too. And, and the pouches. care when it's that leather work. Yeah. What's, yeah. What's, is, is it? It's just an apron on the front. It's almost like a leather worker's apron. Oh, I see. So From it's not actually... top down, it's almost one piece. But he's still wearing a kilt underneath. Oh, right. yeah. He's still wearing, he's still wearing a, a tartan kilt. Oh, uh, yeah. I got confused by the tartan sash and the tartan kilt. I think they're made of the same material. Yeah. But it's um, but it still is... Just, uh, the leather bits are, re- are still just the front. Yeah. And there's little embossed bits on the, on the sash here. Looks like ivy yeah. vines. We have not often seen that kind of leather working. No. Yeah. It looks so soft. Yeah, it's it's like really a suede. Exactly, it does look like that. I was just thinking the same. Good job on textures, whoever did that. <laughs> yeah. So they're um, they're. Their textiles and their look at the look at the 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 
like the vine of leaves on his tartan sash. Mm-hmm. Is that embroidery? I think it's embroidery with like a like sort of a a shiny bronzish looking thread. Uh-huh. Which picks up the leather really well. I mean, it's very well coordinated. Yes, this is this is a well thought out costume. But maybe mm-hmm. th- it goes back to the maybe they are having a party. Maybe he's wearing his Sunday best. Right, it could be it could be fancy dress. Um Yeah. And you're right, JJ. I do get the sense that we're making him uncomfortable. Um, so I'll have to apologize. <laughs> kind of um, looking around like, what is this? Yeah. yeah. So would that be the Took family tartan then out of uh, old history? I wonder. I wonder. What's this blanket on the ground for? Well, he's got a picnic basket. Maybe it's a picnic blanket. He does. Where's his picnic basket? Oh, right over there. there. He's got a hamper. Picnic right. basket. Yeah, I missed it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So he's about to have a, about to have a picnic, and here we are, uh-huh. all standing around and staring at him. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. Intriguing. All right. So I'm trying to think. Gollum's settlement. We don't know how long it goes back pre-Gollum. And there was not much le- left for the Frontus, anyway. Yeah. Oh, they just turn on the lights inside, which I think it means it's getting dark outside. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, okay. Gollum's about 500 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no reason to think that, like, his family were pioneer settlers at their spot mm-hmm. in the Gladden Fields. It was a well-established society there already. Yeah. But, of course, 500 years before, I mean, the hobbits um, have been in the Shire for a whole lot longer than that. Oh, yeah. Um, you know... I mean, Shire Reckoning is already 1,400 years old. That's true, but they also thought they were the first ones there. And that everyone went in the other direction. So So I'm trying to come up with a theory. Mm. One possibility is that we are to imagine... um, Gandalf refers to Gollum's people as related to the fathers of the fathers of the Stores. So Gandalf, who knows more about Hobbit lore than anybody else, implies, I think, that Gollum's people were, if not proto-Hobbits, then at least one of the earliest societies of Hobbits from whom the Hobbits of the Shire themselves derived indirectly. Sure, sort of sort of a Crete to Greece kind of thing. Exactly. So if we imagine if we imagine um, if we imagine the settlement, that settlement, for just for the moment, on the Gladden Fields, as the kind of um, center of the future Hobbit diaspora, right? Now, we don't know where they came from before that, as they presumably didn't crawl out of the mud by the riverside there. Um, uh, but anyway, 
Um, if we imagine for the moment that that's a starting point for hobbits in Rovanian and Eriador, and that from there, some hobbits crossed over the Misty Mountains because they were afraid of Mirkwood. We know that this happened. That's in the Tale of Years, right? That yeah. hobbits fled uh, over the Misty Mountains, ending up, of course, and we, we saw the remnant of those over in Enidwife, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, they migrated north and ended up in Bree and then in the Shire. Um, so all of that would mean that and, and that happened 1,400 years ago. So it has to be yeah. that the early hobbits... No, wait a second. The shadow falling on Mirkwood, that timing doesn't work out. Hmm. That timing doesn't work out. Because no. the fleeing from the shadow, the growing shadow in Mirkwood, would post-date a bunch of the, that migration. Yeah, just general skirmishes, though, would definitely be enough to try to drive them into mm-hmm. some sort of hiding. Right. But anyway, returning yeah, what, to the... What o- Valor was in charge of this? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is the interesting question. Um, okay. So, my immediate question is, are these people... Did some of them migrate north and end up settling here? Or is this the original settlement from which some went downriver and ended up by the Carrick? And the yes, Garden and fields. he said father's fathers, which implied that they might not be the ones where Gollum is li- was living, at the Smeagol was living at the time. Hmm. No, I he think it's Smeagol's... Father's fathers no, 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 that his, Gollum's people were like the, were related, were like the fathers of the fathers of the stores themselves. Fathers, oh, okay, okay, so that was Gandalf's context. Okay. All right, so yes, it does make sense that they would have spread outward. So, like, what I'm trying to basically uh, decide is, is it possible that this is the oldest settlement of hobbits that we know of in Middle-earth? Is this older? Even that, or are we to believe that the one in the Gladden Fields is older? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, but the lack the, of a river seems to indicate that the other one was. Well, well, okay. Well, this is a pond, I suppose. But okay. I don't know. Civilizations right, so, always seem to spring up near rivers. Right. Greenstand made a discovery down here. Oh, okay. Which is this that is the they have boats. Curricles. Right, they are coracles. Yeah. yeah. No, here's the river. So, really could have been either one, but this one does seem more protected than the other one. It certainly does. The sense of isolation that we get, or that we would seem mm-hmm. to get, right? Um, the the way that you take the hidden pass and then you come to the you know valley that time forgot here, certainly gives the sense of you know, the older uh, sense. Now, Catron is saying, if this one settlement has been here in isolation for centuries, how incredibly inbred would the population be by now? 
Well, Kedrion, I think somebody pointed out that they seem to almost all have the last same last name. Um, oh my! <laughs> it does seem to be a clan that lives here, the Tuk the Tuka clan. Now, it certainly would seem that Tuka is almost certainly an older version of Tuk, right? So, mm-hmm. um, that similarity, right? both similarity and difference would also seem to imply that these people are older and are more frozen in time, right? Um, Their language did not go on developing in the same way that Mm -hmm. the Shire Hobbit's language developed. Now, this is is the Iceland to their Denmark. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Just like Iceland. Yes. (laughs) Just like Iceland. Um, including the inbreeding. Um, And the volcanoes. uh, (laughs) And the volcanoes. So many things in common. Um, Yeah. No, when I was over visiting Iceland, I found out that there's... um, I learned... um, I didn't see it myself, so I guess I can't confirm it. But I heard um, that uh, the Icelanders have, uh, have a genealogy app that, like, you know, like when you meet somebody in a bar, you can, like... Mm -hmm get out your app and check to make sure you're not related because you might be, right? You know? Yeah. 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 So, like, it's... 350,000 people. It's a legitimate, like, you know, problem. It's a legitimate issue. Um, Mm -hmm. But, um, anyway, so... But, yes, I I do like that parallel. You know, the, the fact that the language seems a little... I mean, you can tell that... It looks like these people still have the names, again, just like Iceland, that are like the roots of, that d- went on to be developed in other ways, in other, um, in other places. Yes. Um, now, one like of the things that I'm IT doing is... specialists whose name are, you know, Heart Oak, Bo- Oak Bear or something like that still. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm sorry, I'm winding my way up towards the top of the hill because I'm wanting to see if we get anything like... Um, the Great Smiles. Okay, so I guess this is it, right? Tuka's set. This has a... Oh, yeah, yeah. This place has a title. And I can't enter it because I don't I haven't done the quest, which is disappointing. So, yes, this this is what I was oh. looking for. And even so the f- fact that it's called a set, right? Now, isn't that where badgers live? Yes, in badgers a, live in, in a set. Badgers live in a set, right? Uh-huh. Um, With a um, brock and a sow. Yep. Yeah, the badger brock is the is the male badger. That's a Tolkien word used several times. Um, mm-hmm. It does look similar to Brandy Hall, though again, so much stone, right? So much more stone. Um, you know, that's the primary difference. Less. Yeah. Wood, once again, it looks stone. like it's just something they found when they were digging in the ground for all the fields. Mm-hmm. They just had all these stones left. Right, and they built them out into the houses. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they. Even the name of it sounds like, you know, older, more primitive, more sort of close to the earth, right? Less civilized. More animalistic. Um, Yeah, exactly. So, I'm definitely getting that sense of um, uh, age, antiquity. but also of isolation. So 
it isn't necess it doesn't necessarily prove right just as the fact that Iceland's language is kind of a frozen older version of the language that developed in different ways on the mainland that doesn't prove that Iceland came first right that Iceland no. is like Iceland is not older than Norway just because Iceland's language is the older form right that like Norwegian Very much developed like the Vikings from. spoke it yes Exactly. So, I, in fact, we know the opposite to be true mm -hmm. um, in that way. Um, so it doesn't prove that this settlement is, in fact, the oldest settlement. It would only suggest that they are the most isolated of all the settlements. And what's yes. more, I would add, the Gothic name um, suggests that they were, their language is again, like, like Iceland again, right? They're still speaking the language that the Vikings were speaking when the Vikings landed there, right? Yep. Um, so, too, these people are still speaking, the, like, the Aotheod is long gone, but they're still speaking the language of the Aotheod and of Rovanian, mm -hmm. which was clearly Gothic. Um, so that would seem to date it, right? Just as the ice... Uh, the Icelandic language kind of gives you a sense of when Iceland, you know, when the Vikings arrived in in Iceland. Um, yep. So too, their language here does suggest that this settlement came, like the hobbits who settled here, came here during the time of Rovanian and the Aotheod, the early mm -hmm. Aotheod before their language further developed into the Old English-style language that we get um, uh, in The Lord of the Rings. So I think it's probably not the oldest settlement. I think I would go back to the likelihood that Gollum's settlement is older. Was still older. thinking Gladden Fields for that? Yeah, Gladden Fields, I think, probably still I, takes the cake. I think so, and what, what strikes me most is that area is full of, you know, rivers and, and wildlife and stuff like that, but it's also yes. incredibly exposed. So I could see that after a, a being, you know, a, tormented by various peoples going back and forth or just getting caught in the crossfire even, they would seek a refuge that was more sheltered and isolated. Right, which is why some of them come up north and settle here and some of them go over the mountains and mm -hmm. try to find a more isolated place. And of course, where we find outside the Shire... Like we we always find hobbits thriving in the game, where they've always they've posited hobbits thriving in these sheltered places. They're tucked away in that hidden corner of the Ennardwife, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. The Shire itself. It we're looking for it. Exactly. The Shire itself is exposed, but it's protected by the Dunedain and has been for generations, right? And the big bridge with the door. Right, right, yeah. I mean, well, yes, but uh, there are other ways in. It's not, I mean, the Shire is nothing like as tucked away as, uh, uh, as the, now the Breelands aren't exactly, you know, tucked away either, but, um, but all of them, the Shire and Bree, are all isolated. I mean, they're not exactly, um, you know, suburban um, areas. Yeah, it does make um, you wonder why they weren't the victim of uh, several men trying to, you know, make their mar mark on it, or just sort of, you know, trample it and say, "Mine, I have mm -hmm. a flag, mine." Exactly. Well, again, in the for the Shire, we know the answer to this to be the Dunedain, right? Yes. Um, and in Bree, 
presumably the answer is like the, uh, you know, the sort of friendly relations that they established with, uh, um, you know, with the Brie Lantern. versus and uh, symbiotic relationship, probably. Exactly. Think about the reaction of the Breland hobbits to the idea of human refu- refugees coming up the Greenway. They don't feel particularly threatened because they're like, well, you know, the big folk can't live in our holes, right? So they're not going to yeah. come and kick us out of our houses and take them for themselves. Um, Men don't do things like that, do they? Right, right. And now, as Tora Marthen points out, the Windleby hobbits are doubly isolated, right? They are isolated by geography. No one's just going to stumble in here. But in addition, mm-hmm. they're protected because they're protected by the eagles. Yeah, that's which, what we saw by the bridge. As we saw by the bridge, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are doubly yeah. sheltered in that way. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really and interesting. The fact they're so upriver means that not, no one can even stumble accidentally on the, on, the, on the river either because the right. current's going the wrong way. Right, exactly. Exactly. Cool. All right, well... Um, that's, um, yeah, and Hologrove points out that the quest texts expressly state that the eagles are protecting them. Yeah, oh, good. agreed. Cool. Good for that. Cool. All right. Um, well, we are out of time, but this was a great exploration of Lindelby. I think that apart from the mystery of that wooden mechanism, which I think our working theory uh, that it has to do with the wells um, is... Um, uh, uh, I, I think a good working theory, um, but um, uh, but anyway, uh, I, this was uh, this was really cool and has led to some really fascinating. I just I am um, I am always admiring um, the world building that the Lotro folks have done. I think that uh, this is fantastic. I love how they think through this stuff, yes, and this seems really well thought through. They've undone awesome. themselves with this one. They really did. It really did. And such a delightful surprise to come around the corner and find them here. So cool. All right. Um, Well, I will let everybody go. Thank you for joining me this evening. Um, And I will... Wait a second. Ooh, forgot to say this at the beginning. It should have done. I will not be here next week. Um, My family's going to be traveling a little bit next week uh, visiting some family. Uh, So I will not be able to broadcast next Tuesday. But I, oh wait, I'm not going to be here for the next two Tuesdays, actually. Oh Oh, man, I totally should have mentioned that at the beginning of class. Um, But um, yeah, yeah, because I'm I'm doing, I'm first seeing some family next week, and then the week after that, my son and I are going to uh, orientation at his college, so I will not be here for the next two Tuesdays. Yeah, sorry. College, I know, right? Yeah. Um, So yeah, so we're um, um, uh, exactly as uh, as the wolf says. After just catching up, I'm going to go through withdrawal. I know, right? Um, Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Uh, By the way, congratulations, the wolf. Welcome. Glad you could join us. Um, But um, anyway, yeah. So um, so yeah. So that's so it'll be. Gosh, what will it be? fortnight a fortnight no it'll be three weeks oh, from three tonight weeks. yeah oh, yes what? yeah it'll be uh, the 27th good grief practically the end of july before we'll be back oh, for another one that's um, summer for you 
there it is. It is summer. This yeah, there are two little chunks of family travel that I'll be doing this summer. This is one. Another one will come at the end of August. Okay. Uh, oh, there will be another two weeks. Sure, sure luck. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, next, next, but uh, the next one, the next big trip will be driving the child to college. Big old road trip across the country. Wow. So oh, it hurts my brain. Yeah. Um, but, uh, oh, yeah, so I will talk about this tomorrow, Tomas, but uh, Wednesdays will be a little bit better. Um, I'll miss Wednesday next week, but I will be back the week after. Um, my son and I will be arriving home on Tuesday night, but we'll still be in the air uh, where our plane isn't landing till like, midnight. So um, won't make it for Tuesday night, but we will be back for Wednesday night next week. Anyway, all right. Thanks, everybody. So I will see you guys for Exploring the Lord of the Rings three weeks from tonight after a, a disappointingly long hiatus. We'll be back uh, and we'll continue with the uh, the Ringo South. And I think we're done with the Wells of Langflood now. Yeah? Wow. I think yep, we've been everywhere. Right. Well, so, on to a Regian, I guess. Yeah, next time we... Well, no, because we still have a whole bunch of more talking to do before we actually depart from Rivendell. So I think we have time to held up to to head up to Elderslade. So we'll reconvene okay. at Lindelby, say goodbye uh, to Valoric, and then we'll head up to do Elderslade. I think try to squeeze that in before we head down to Eregion. All right. I think there isn't that's much the to look at up there, and yeah. we will look at it. But there will be things to see. All right. Yes. Very cool. All right. All right. Thank you, everybody. Have a good evening. See you Goodbye. guys later.